Hello, and welcome to the Gravel Ride Podcast, where we go deep on the sport of gravel cycling through in-depth interviews with product designers, event organizers, and athletes who are pioneering the sport. I'm your host, Craig Dalton, a lifelong cyclist who discovered gravel cycling back in 2016 and made all the mistakes you don't need to make. I approach each episode as a beginner to unlock all the knowledge you need to become a great gravel cyclist. This week on the show, I welcome Andrew Vaughts. You may recognize his voice from the Choose the Hard Way podcast, a podcast that I was recently a guest on and have become a fan of. I've always been a fan of the value of choosing the hard way in terms of life experiences. While many of us haven't sought out difficult times in our lives, all of us have experienced them. Andrew explores these topics through the filter of an athlete himself, but also through the filter of entrepreneurs he has on the show. I highly recommend giving it a listen. What caught my ear recently was a comment Andrew made on his show about his experience at Rasputitsa, a gravel event in Vermont. I thought it would be fun to have him on the show. And frankly, after talking to him on his broadcast, I became curious to learn a little bit more about his background. I hope you enjoy the show. Before we jump in, I do need to thank our friends at Dynamic Cyclist. Dynamic Cyclist has created a cycling-specific stretching and strength program that you can access directly from a convenient app on your device or from a video player on their website. To check out their programs, check out dynamiccyclist.com. And if you use the code THEGRAVELRIDE, you'll get 15% off either a monthly or annual membership. They've got a one-week free trial, so you can see what the experience looks like. They've created 15 to 20-minute stretching videos specifically designed around the problem areas cyclists will experience. I was doing it a ton during the winter to help support my back issues, and frankly, I need to dive back in. There's no excuse for not stretching. It's probably one of the best things you can do to enhance your gravel cycling experience. So remember, check out dynamiccyclist.com and use the code THEGRAVELRIDE for 15% off. With that business behind us, let's jump right into my conversation with Andrew. Andrew, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me here, Craig. It's great to be back together after having you over on Choose the Hard Way. It was a blast. I know. I feel like we're we're becoming fast friends and uh, as podcasters, as contemporaries, as cyclists and how we discovered the sport and some of the cycling eras we've kind of gone through together. It's been fun talking to you on your podcast, which I want to get into a bit a bit later, um, but just sharing text messages and seeing and hearing about what you've been up to on your podcast really is what sparked this conversation. You had made mention in your podcast about doing Rasputitsa in Vermont, a, a gravel event that I'd had on the podcast. I had to check the date. It's going back to 2018 that wow. I had Heidi Myers on the podcast. So it was episode 12 of the Gravel Ride podcast for anybody who's going back in the feed and wants to listen to that. But it's an event that you know is super well regarded and super interesting. So long, long way of saying welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks for having me here. And I would say, you know, I know we're going to get there, but I would say Rasputitsa is definitely one of the monuments of gravel generally in the entire world and certainly here on the East Coast. And I'm excited to share a bit about how I got dragged into, <laughs> into doing it and what I learned. But, you know, 
Yeah, I think this is the magic of the bike, right, Craig? It brings people together. It, you know, you form these bonds, and it uh, it's really amazing the way communities and friendships form around the bike and the freedom it gives us and the places it takes us. And I think this is just another example of that and why I personally love the bike so much and always have. Yeah, 100%. I don't know if you've you've done this event multiple times and we can get into that, but just going back to events year after year, it's kind of almost like summer camp where you see the same people, like maybe you have a crew that goes from your local community, but there's also the broader cycling community that you're like, oh, I rode with you. We were at the same pace last year and friends you make on the road or trail. It's just such an amazing part of the sport. Yeah, absolutely. And this was my first time at Rasputitsa. And I may have mentioned this when I had you on Choose the Hard Way, but I really felt like I had hit the point of kind of being retired from big gravel, as I, I would call it, um, kind of like these marquee bucket list events. I definitely, I'll explain why when we get into it and what ended up happening when I, I got there to one of these big bucket list events. But it was definitely an exciting and interesting experience for sure. Where did you grow up and how did you find your way to the bike originally? Yeah, I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, and the bike found me. I didn't find the bike. Uh, a bike showed up one day. My cousins, Jason and Grady, had an old Schwinn Stingray. I'm dating myself here, but it was a green sparkle Schwinn Stingray with a silver sparkle banana seat, which at the time that I received this bicycle, which was a secondhand bicycle, they just showed up one day and they're like, hey, here's this bike for you. This is, you know, this is your bike now. It's a very exciting moment in my life when I got this bike. Uh, it was not uh, the style of bike that other kids were riding. Most kids were riding BMX bikes. This is like the era of ET, if anybody remembers that, like the BMX bike with ET in the basket. Nonetheless, I was just loved the bike. I loved getting on it. it. Started out like everybody else on training wheels. Then they came off, went from there onto other bikes. And then when I was about, did a lot of you know, playing around with BMX freestyle when I was a kid skateboarding and then got into geared bikes in probably 1988 or 89. And then Le Mans victory at the tour in 89 really helped me to fall in love with the idea of riding geared bikes, because at the time I uh, certainly was not great at it. And how did you find your way to those geared bikes? I mean, obviously like at that point, I don't know where you are chronologically in your age, but, um, you know, you have to be able to afford the bike. You have to make a decision. Am I going to buy one of these early mountain bikes, which you start hearing about in, right. in the late eighties, or am I going to get a drop bar bike? Yeah, exactly. For me, the path to all of those things was standing behind a lawnmower and pushing it. Uh, <laughs> you know, my dad got me out there in my neighborhood not, and my mom, they were like, Hey, if, if you want money, if you want to get a bike, go knock on some doors and mow some lawns. So that's what I did. And that's actually what I ended up doing for about the next decade, I started a lawn business called The Yard Barber. Eventually, my good friend Nicholas Crump became my partner. We merged two companies. Uh, that was my first experience in M&A at a young age. <laughs> and um, yeah, but lawn mowing really is what fueled my uh, my passion for cycling. We had a family friend, Pat Twinner, and she was into triathlon, which in Kansas City was a pretty bizarre thing at that time and place, but she was an early adopter. and she took me out on one of my first rides on geared bikes. I took my mom's Schwinn Murata, which was pink and had flat bars. And my dad had gotten that for my mom 
for Mother's Day when I was maybe, I'm going to say like 11 or 12, I started riding around on this bike. I went out on a ride uh, with Mrs. Twinner. She graciously kind of introduced me to the world of geared bikes. And then on that ride, uh, we came up to an intersection. I wasn't paying attention and I rode into the back of her bike. And that was my first experience of being yelled at on a bike ride, which was totally appropriate. <laughs> That's the way you learn. Yeah. I definitely came up in that the school of no one's going to give you anything when you start riding with them and they're going to sort of treat you with a little bit of disdain until you learn the rules of the road. Yeah, that's certainly how it was during that time and place. And that's also, you know, how I learned how to move around in a pack and ride in a group safely and not hurt anyone uh, or myself too badly, only sometimes. And was there a point in which you got drawn into some sort of competitive cycling activity? Yeah, I always, you know, ever since I saw Le Mans on the Champs-Élysées in 89, I always had this fantasy of competing in cycling. And honestly, when I was a kid and I got my my first, my own first gear bike, which was a Trek, I think it was like a Trek 400 touring bike, I soon realized, oh my gosh, this thing has three chain rings. I'm not that cool. I have a touring bike. Then I ended up getting a Schwinn circuit um, that I saved up lawn mowing money and purchase, which had a double crank set. Started doing some stuff with the Kansas City Bicycle Club, met some mentors. And you know, I, I would not say that I had a world tour engine, Craig, but I had a lot of fun and it was just something that I always had a passion for. I became kind of obsessed with cycling through print cycling media when I was a kid, started following that winning magazine. If anyone out there is of our vintage, they might remember that Bella news. And from there is, you know, doing a little bit of crit racing, got into mountain biking, started doing a lot of mountain bike racing, not at your level, um, but just some amateur stuff around the Midwest. And it's just always been a part of my life ever since. It's been like a very core part of what I do. I once heard Chris Carmichael, I, actually I was interviewing Chris Carmichael at one point and he talked about how he thinks about the bike and training is like a mise en place for his life. And I thought that's like a very apt description. And it's it's really kind of how I think about it. It kind of organizes everything else in my life and brings balance and a lot of joy and, and friendship and other benefits to me. I yeah. don't know how my family always feels about it, but you know. <laughs> you Cycling also played a role in some of your professional, your early professional life as well. I think it's important just to kind of set the stage with that as well. Yeah, for sure. So like a quick thumbnail on me professionally, I, uh, I moved to California. I moved to LA to get an MFA in creative writing. While I was doing that, I started freelancing for magazines. I quickly found my way to challenge publications located in Canoga Park, California. Uh, they had a publication called Mountain Biking. I started working there for, I believe, $8 an hour as an intern. So that was like uh, that wasn't my first, uh, paycheck as a writer. My first paycheck as a writer came from vice magazine, which was a print publication at the time I started working at mountain biking. I did that for about a year. And then I moved on to be a freelance journalist for about a decade, wrote for outlets like Rolling Stone, the Los Angeles times outside magazine. Broadly, I wrote about people, places, and things at the limits of human experience. There was some cycling mixed in there over the years. I, I wrote about the Tour de France for a couple of tours, did daily commentary for Fox Sports on their website. 
and a number of other cycling related things, but cycling wasn't the core focus, but it was always something I stayed really in touch with. I also, in LA, I was really involved in, there is a community called Midnight Riders that's started taking off. It wasn't critical mass. It was more just like people getting out on bikes and having fun doing themed rides. So I was doing that a lot for a long time from that started with like a dozen people. And I was there from like a dozen people to several thousand over the years. And then I also had a foot in the world of crit racing and doing other stuff. Later, I would be the head of content at TRX, the human performance company started by Randy Hetrick, the former Navy SEAL. And then I was at Strava for seven years where I was a communications executive and oversaw media relations, public relations, crisis communications and crisis management and public policy. And, um, and then I decided to leave Strava a little over a year ago. I have my podcast, Choose the Hard Way. I'm also the co-host of Beyond the Peloton with Spencer Martin, a pro cycling analysis podcast. And then I also do some strategic narrative consulting and advising. And I'm actually, like everyone in tech, I'm now working on a startup um, with David Lorsch, who is a uh, fellow executive at Strava. We're working on something we're really excited about, not quite ready to share with the world. Nice. Well, you have to yeah. come back and tell us about it yeah. at some point. Absolutely. So at some point along the way, you've, so you've discovered uh, road riding, crit racing, mountain biking. When did gravel racing come into the fold and what type of events did you pursued previously? Yeah. So I started, I became fascinated with gravel racing around 2005. And that's when I became aware of Guitar Ted and Jeff Krakowi, who was at the time a bike shop employee in Iowa. Those guys started an event that your listeners are probably familiar with called Trans Iowa. And I thought, wow, this is just completely nuts. And when I was growing up, I'd always heard about Ragbri. I ended up uh, doing Ragbri twice. I wrote a feature story about it for Bicycling Magazine in the early 2000s. So there was always, you know, people think about the epicenters of cycling community in the United States as being Boulder, Colorado, the Bay Area. I mean, later I would learn Los Angeles has a pretty unparalleled cycling culture and community in my view, as well as access to such a huge variety of terrain. But the Midwest also has this huge cycling culture and has, you know, for a very long time. And this kind of like DIY ethos that Jeff and Guitars had had putting this event together, people going out and doing this thing that just seemed really inadvisable. And the manner in which they were repurposing terrain that I think a lot of people think about is just kind of dull. Uh, and turning it into something really interesting and like yeah. this grand, grand adventure that really captivated my imagination. I wrote about that for mountain bike magazine. I was a contributing editor for a while in the mid two thousands interviewed Jeff. And then just kind of in the back of my head for the longest time, I was like, I really want to go and try one of these things. Fast forward. I was doing whatever I was training. I was doing a little bit of racing. And then I heard about the event that at the time was known as Dirty Kanza. And I just felt this gravitational pull. I was like, I got to go try this thing. I'll also tell you, Craig, I never had any interest in doing the full 200 mile version of that event. I, I know that people have a lot of passion for it, but for me, that was just like the far side of something that would actually be fun. So I ended up doing 
the, you know, the half pint, which is advertised as a hundred is actually about 105. I first did that in 2013. It was amazing. It was an incredible event. I was so naive about what the event might actually be like. I overprepared. I actually had a physical compass in my bag because it was like on, it was on the gear list. It's like, you have to have a compass and lights and all this stuff. And I was like, I don't know, do they, are they going to check my bag before I start? I had no idea. And so that was kind of my first introduction to the world of gravel. I'd been doing a lot of cross racing at that time. And then I trained for that event. I went there, uh, with my then girlfriend, now wife, Molly, she was my support at the halfway point. And she ended up waiting a very long time because the signage was not the world's best at that time. It, but uh, you had the, the compass, young... Andrew. You had the yeah, compass. Yeah, I know. I had the compass. I should have taken it out because at mile 20, I turned left onto the 200-mile course and realized about 20 miles later, I was not on the correct course. So I had to backtrack. So I had a very, you know, I think I did, what, 135 or 140 miles that day. And I was like, okay, I got to come back. And then I went back in uh, 2014, 2015. I got second in the 100 both times. And then I did a bunch of other gravel events in between. The Gravel Gauntlet, I don't know if any of your listeners might remember that, but a Bay Area promoter, Murphy Mac, had a gravel series that went on for a while that was quite interesting and had some pretty cool races. Yeah, So yeah, that's kind of, that's how I got into gravel. I didn't realize because we didn't dig in this deeply that how OG you are to gravel riding. That's going back a ways. That's yeah. I've been doing it for a minute. Yeah. I love it. I love it. And then what, what of the, like, what was last year? Like, had you, had you done a bunch? We'll get into like why you decided to sign up for Rasputitsa. And, but I'm curious, like, have you remained active over the last year in events? So I'm now living in Midcoast, Maine. I live in Hope, Maine, which is a beautiful place. And one of the things that I discovered here was, uh, you know, like we were talking about at the beginning, the bike is an amazing thing. You can find community, you can find friendships, you can find some pretty amazing stuff through bicycles. I connected with a small community of riders here. And when I say small, I, I reflect on this sometimes because when I was living in the Bay Area and commuting, when I would go from BART to Strava, I mean, Craig, I would see what, probably like 500 people on bikes easily in the two yeah. mile stretch. If I went on a group ride and, or just like roll down on my bike in Oakland or went over to Marin, again, you're going to see hundreds of people fully kitted up going out here in the mid coast area. You know, a big group ride is about six people. Um, but I met this awesome crew here. They're great people. And that's how I discovered something called the main gravel series, which is a small series of gravel fondos here. And they're just incredible events. And so I did that whole series last year. It was a blast. They're not super long events, but they're just right. I like to say that I'm a gravel sprint distance specialist now. Um, so, you know, those events were all sub four hours, but they were a lot of fun. And then somebody in that small crew that I've been rolling with here a couple of months ago said, Hey, my Rasputitsa entry is up for grabs. Cause I have to travel somewhere that week. And I had kind of sworn off doing big gravel events anymore, both 
things that are longer than three hours and events that have a very large number of people. I just have decided, you know what? I don't think that these things are for me anymore. And then this opportunity came up and I thought I had a couple of my buddies from here going, my friends, Morgan and Jamie. I thought, you know what? I should, I should just do this thing. So that's kind of how I got suckered back into big gravel. Got it. Were, were there some elements of big gravel that just weren't to your liking? Yeah. I mean, even when I think back on the dirty Kansas half pint, uh, today known as the unbound 100, I mean, you know how it is, Craig, like the first hour of those events where you have a mass start where you're either in a pen or you're like constrained on a city street, you either have to show up two hours early and stand there until the event starts, or you have to find some way to worm your way into the spot on the grid where you want to be. From what I understand, Unbound has changed that. And they now, similar to Leadville, I think they have pens based on what you anticipate your starting time to be. But when, I mean, when I went there in 2014, 2015, my intent was I want to win this race. So I just did a Davis Finney. If anybody's not familiar with Davis Finney, legendary American pro road racer and his big move when he would go to crits, everyone would line up and then he would just ride the course backwards and back into the front of the grid. Uh, you know, don't try this at home folks, or maybe do if, if you want to get a really good spot on a starting grid. Um, yeah, you just have to be willing to accept, you know, a couple minutes of nasty looks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. It's, uh, but anyhow, so like kind of that aspect of it and what I found, uh, during unbound, gosh, just that first hour, um, at the time it was fine from a risk management point of view. I just like being that proximate to so many people, on roads you're really not that familiar with when you know that you're going to be at some point you're just going to ride into a pothole or something people are going to be wrecking all over the place and that was fine at that time and place in my life i think as i've gotten older now that i've got kids my kids are four and six and now that i've thought more about like hey i've got kids (laughs) i I, uh you know i want to whatever i don't want to go to one of these events and get injured i just think that that's like a bit more top of mind for me now. And just like being caught in that really what seems like a very unnecessary mosh at the beginning of an event. And I, I get it. Like that's part of the excitement. Some people really enjoy that. But for me, I I'm just not sure if that's like the best way to run an event anymore or that I want to do that. So that was one of the factors. And then the other factor for me, uh, following unbound 2015, I developed AFib and Again, for people who are listening, uh, if you haven't had AFib yourself, if you've done this for a really long time, I bet you know two or three people who've had cardiac ablations. I ended up being able to manage mine through non-surgical means, but I just became cognizant of, okay, I have like, at this point, I have a 30 plus year, very deep training history, which has a lot of benefits for your health. And, you know, part of what I discovered in 2013 to 2016, because I was racing a full, really intense cross season, probably 20 plus races a year, uh, racing at an elite master's level eventually, and just getting totally waxed. Um, But doing that and then putting in really big miles to get ready for Unbound, 
I actually felt like I had crossed a tipping point and going from like, this is something that's physically healthy to, I think I'm kind of damaging my body at this point and I need to dial it back. Yeah. And so I think that was another big factor for me and gravitating more towards the gravel sprint distance and away from the, we're going to ride our bikes for infinity. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. So as you're contemplating Rasputitsa, it's a different kind of vibe. Like that's, they've intentionally tried to create something different. And I've heard from Heidi, obviously, and followed the race over the years, but I'd love to get your perspective going into it. You knew you didn't want to go to a, a big time gravel event. Maybe this had a longer distance and certainly more participants than you've been used to. But what was your expectation going in as to how the event would feel for you? Yeah. I mean, my expectation was this is really the first event like this that I entered as a completer, not as a competitor, right? Okay. So I was yeah. like, okay, I'm going to go to this event. I'm going to complete the event. I'm going to get to experience a new place. I hadn't been to Vermont actually. So I was like, cool, I'm going to get to see this new place. I'm going to get to meet some new people. I don't know how you feel, Craig, when you go to a race, but part of what I love about it is, I mean, I'm even thinking about it right now. It's like you have such a cool bike on the wall behind you. And now I'm like, Oh wow. Like what's that chain ring? That looks so cool. Is there a power meter? Um, but I'm a total gear dork. So it's really fun for me to be around a thousand plus people, all of whom have all of these different, you know, that's like horses for courses, just saying like, Hey, what's everybody running? What yeah. tires do they have? All of that. So that's a lot of fun. And just being around, the energy of people who have decided, you know, kind of going back to the thesis of my podcast, choose the hard way, which is hard things build stronger humans and doing hard things is fun. You know, I like being around people who have that mindset and attitude and being around people who've, you know, decided I'm going to go out and I'm going to do this thing. That's, it's going to be fun. And I guarantee for every person who was at event, including Ian Boswell and the other elite competitors, there was some moment in that day when they felt intensely uncomfortable and asked themselves, like, what am I doing? Why am I here? But like, that's why we do this stuff. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, for me, I just felt like it was time to like step back into the fire and, um, experience like part of the magic of what happens when people come together with the intention of doing something hard together. And was there something particular about the magic of Rasputitsa that you had been led to understand either through your friends or, through research that uh, made you more excited than just going out on a bike race? Yeah. I mean, I had definitely heard a lot about the vibe. My friends, uh, Jamie, Morgan, Greg, they had all done the event in previous years. And yeah, they said, Hey, like the vibe of this event is great. Really strong community feel really supportive. Bobby from the mid South also now, I, I don't know if they've always worked together, but they're working together in this coordinated manner. And, um, yeah. So those things were all things that jumped out at me as signatures of an event that would be a lot of fun and where the vibe would be good. And, uh, and the course itself I knew was pretty brutal. I I'm a larger human being. I'm six, two. And depending on what my relationship with ice cream is like at any period of time, I'm typically between like 180 or 190 pounds. I'm not, I'm not, particularly built for going uphill for long periods of time. And this race has 7,200 feet of climbing. So I was like, perfect. This will be really hard for me to do. 
and I'll train hard for it and we'll see how that goes. So that appealed to me as well. Yeah, it's interesting. A little under 60 miles, but 7,000 plus feet of climbing. Right. It's climbing all over the place on that course, as it would sound. Yeah, it's it's infinity climbing. And they're, you know, kind of a wild card for me. When I do gravel loops locally, like I actually did one not long before this uh, before this podcast, where I live, it's glaciated terrain and there are small mountains and you are not riding on a flat road for any period of time. So you're always going up or down. And, you know, it would be typical here, like the main gravel series to do four or 5,000 feet of climbing and two and a half to three hours. So there's a lot of climbing where I live. What I didn't know with Rasputitsa, I didn't, I mean, I could have looked online and figured this out, but I was kind of in, in an ignorance is bliss kind of mindset about this, but the amplitude of the climbs was much greater. And, uh, for anybody who's listening, who's in the Bay area, I used to do a ton of training on my cross bike, then gravel bike in the Marin headlands. I don't know if this is the correct name of the trail, but it might be Marincello. Is that a really long climb? And yeah. yeah. So I used to go do like LT repeats on that thing. And, uh, one day, I believe it was in 2017, I was listening to Phil Collins. I can, I can feel it coming in the air tonight. I still remember the track going down, just like bombing down that after doing an interval, I felt so cool, Craig. I was like, my gravel descending is like so dialed in now. I'm really comfortable. And that of course was the moment that I, my bike like went completely out from under me while going around a, a turn at like 30 miles an hour, ripped off most of my right knee, uh, was gushing blood and then had to ride back home to the inner sunset at the time. But that kind of changed my personal relationship with being comfortable going downhill fast on gravel. So I knew going into Rasputitsa, it's like, okay, 7,200 feet of climbing. I'm not so sure about what is the descending going to be like. And then once I got there, I found out. Yeah. And I want, that's interesting. I want to get into those details because I think that's so useful for others. But I want to start out with like the beginning of your day. You, you know, you had expressed that this was going to be a bit longer of an event than you had done previously. So a little bit of like potential anxiety for like, you know, can I step up to this longer distance? But you've also said you're not going in there in the mindset of being competitive. You're just wanting to, to finish the day and have a good time. Did that change the way you kind of showed up in the morning? Were you as like dialed as before or were you not? And Craig, in some fantasy world, I would be really calm the morning of doing a big event. Uh, the reality of it for me is, uh, my fitness was really fantastic going into the event. And as I got closer to the event and was looking at, you know, my wattage and analyzing my performance, I started to feel like, wow, I think I can go pretty fast at this event. I, I just had this feeling, you know, I think I can go pretty quick. And that started to amplify my expectations of what the event might be like. And then when I was going to the event, for some reason, Google Maps sent me off-road for the final 20 miles going into Burke. And that's when I realized, oh, these downhills are going to be way gnarlier than I thought they would be. And again, for a lot of people, it's probably, 
whatever, they might feel super comfortable going downhill on gravel at high speeds. But because of that wreck I had, I just don't feel that comfortable doing that anymore. And I knew like, yeah, I'm just here to complete this. But also I was feeling this tension of, yeah, but I think I'm in really good shape. The long and short of it is I ended up not getting a good night of sleep. I woke up and I was, you know, nonetheless, my equipment was dialed. My nutrition was dialed. I was ready to go. And that's when I texted my buddy, Jamie, who was up in the parking lot at the event. I had misread the event schedule and he was like, Hey man, what time are you coming up here? And I was like, Oh, I think I'm going to come up around eight. Cause him and my buddy Morgan had gone up there at like six 30 in the morning. I was like, you guys are crazy. You're just going to sit around up there. And Jamie was like, that's cool, man. But the race starts at eight. So you're like, just going to jump in when it comes down the hill. <laughs> so, and I had just eaten a pile of pancakes. So I was like, all right, I guess I'm leaving right now. And then I just got on my bike and pedaled up the hill to the start. And that's, you know, that was how my day started. So <laughs> the, the morning was a little, I wanted it to be chill and it turned out to be a little bit anxious. Did you get swept up in the start? You know, everybody sort of, you tend to ride above your means when it starts, regardless of your discipline. Yeah. The reality for me was I had gotten such a bad night of sleep. I honestly, I think I slept like 45 minutes or an hour. And for me, that's not super uncommon the night before doing a big event. I just typically don't sleep that well. It's been interesting on my podcast to talk to a lot of different elite athletes. Some of them like Alexi Vermeulen, who I know you've interviewed. He shared with me, I mean, if you watch Alexi's videos, he's like tinkering on his bike at midnight the night before a race. He's like, yeah, you know, I, I typically, my sleep's not awesome. Then I've had other people on who are like, yeah, I sleep 10 hours the night before a race. So I'm more in the, I'm typically not getting a ton of sleep, but that morning I woke up and I was so exhausted that I actually called my wife and I was like, Hey, you know what? I didn't sleep at all last night. I I don't really know how I feel about doing this. And then my kids in the background were like, you got to do it, dad. So I was like, okay, I guess, I guess I'm doing the event. Um, (laughs) so like once I got to the start, uh, the way the start is at this race, which I think this is very important information. I couldn't find it online. So you're not actually in a pen. You're in this giant parking lot at Burke mountain. I think it's the lodge. So it's like the lower part of the mountain. So it's a giant dirt parking lot. And I was able to just kind of slot in from the side where I wanted to position myself. And the tricky thing about the start. So it, um, they do have a race vehicle that leads the race out, but you're on a dirt road in a parking lot and people got there. I would say like a half hour before the event, they started lining up. I got there about 20 minutes before I slotted in where I wanted to. The event starts, you go a couple hundred yards on this dirt road, you turn left and then it's a downhill. Um, both lanes are blocked. So they're at that point, the course is closed and you go, you descend a couple hundred feet and less than a mile. So you're going at a very high speed in a group of 500 people. And, you know, I don't know what everyone else did over the winter here in the Northeast, but this was for me, the third time I had 
been on a bicycle outside in six months. So, you know, I've gone from Zwift to I'm, you know, elbow to elbow with 500 people going, going down a hill, like 45 miles an hour. And then at the bottom of that hill, it's a hard left onto a dirt road. And then that's the first kind of sorting out of the day. Uh, but that was not my favorite thing in life to go down that descent, even in a relatively controlled manner. Yeah. I can only imagine. It's yeah. just like, get your heart rate. Go you don't want your heart rate to be pumping that much when you're just going downhill, yeah. slightly terrified of what could happen around you as anything could with, with that many people elbow to elbow and then turning into a dirt corner sounds like a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Not my favorite thing in the world. And like any road in the Northeast after winter, lots of just, you know, there are potholes, there's stuff that you can't see, which anybody listening to this who does gravel events, you're used to that. The difference is like you're moving pretty quick when you go down this hill. But again, for some people, that's just whatever for me, it's, it's not my favorite thing to do on a bike. But then once we got to the bottom of the hill, turn left, and then it was just full gas for the next probably three miles. So there's a really nice long climb with some really quite steep pitches right out of the gate that really starts to sort things out. Yeah. Yep. And then it starts to spread out a little bit and you can find smaller groups. Yeah, exactly. And are you, are the roads just sort of wide dirt roads at that point? Yeah. So if anybody has done Unbound or if you've ridden in California's Central Valley, those roads, so like Midwest gravel, you're going to get generally chunkier gravel, looser gravel, gravel you might sink in. West Coast, it's a bit different. It's more, you know, I, I know there's a variety of styles of gravel on the West Coast, but it tends to be more hard packed dirt or gravel roads. These roads were quite compact. It had rained quite a bit prior to the event. The research that I had done ranged from, hey, it'll be a complete mud fest if it rains because they used to have a five mile quote unquote cyclocross section in the race. And I'll get to that because there was a, a surprise that was not in the GPX file that they had provided to participants in the race. And I also had read, hey, don't worry about rain the roads drain really fast. And if it, if it rains, it's just going to be harder packed and dry. I know people are also probably wondering about tires. I asked around quite a bit. <clears throat> I also recently had Dylan Johnson on my podcast and he of course is at the forefront of the wider is better movement. Uh, I personally, for this event, I ran forties, I ran Pirelli, H's. I, yeah, I think it's like the hard pack Pirelli tire. They've got a bit of side knob, but fast rolling. That was an excellent tire choice. I would recommend something like that, whether it's going to be wet or dry, because that's going to shed mud if it's muddy. And if it's dry, it's like the perfect tire, something like that. So something with, um, you know, either a smooth or a semi-slick center knob, and then maybe a bit of edge because there is a lot of high speed downhilling. But the course itself, for the most part, was pretty hard packed. But then there was, this was just like classic, lots of marbly, loose stuff in places you might not want it to be, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which I'm <laughs> describing every gravel race ever. Um, but yeah, and then there were only a handful, there were a handful of short sections that had fresh, 
just like fresh rocks dumped on them much later in the course. Um, but I think that was, uh, that was abnormal from what I could tell. I don't know why that they had just freshly dumped rocks on the road there, but for the most part, pretty hard packed. Yeah. And then what, what was the unexpected section of the course? Oh, wow. Um, so the unexpected section of the course, it was probably around mile, I'm guessing it was like mile 47. And I I also will say that the course had excellent signage. This course had the best signage of any event I have ever participated in. I don't know what your experience has been, but I just expect that in 100% of events like this I participate in, I'm going to get totally lost at some point or a sign will be pointing the wrong way or whatever. It actually didn't happen this time, <laughs> uh, which, which was amazing. But I got to this one section and I was, I knew I was following the signs that had said hundred K course go this way. I turned and then I started to get the, you know, the dreaded off course notification on my garment. So I'm like, okay, what's going on. There are people here. I think this is the right way. Maybe not. And then I quickly kind of deduce it's like, okay. And then it channeled us onto some double track and single track that was just really sloppy, relatively deep mud. And I don't know if that was not included in the GPX file on purpose is kind of a surprise to participants or what the deal was, but that was about a three, three and a half mile section with a lot of single track. And I don't, I I guess it's just the nature of the soil in this one section that it was actually like quite thick mud. And, you know, I was like, great, I can ride in muddy single track. I've done a ton of cyclocross. This is kind of fun. Um, And then there were a couple of sections in there where it made more sense to get off and just like push through a couple of stream crossings and stuff. It wasn't a big deal. It was nothing like what I'd read online about, I I don't know if this was like the historic, horrible slug through the mud that I'd read about. It didn't really seem like that. It seemed kind of fun. Yeah. I think if I'm not mistaken, Rasputitsa is a Russian word for sort of spring mud. Yes. So it seems like it would be off brand if they didn't have mud there for you to some degree. Well, they had it, they had it. And, uh, (laughs) it was a, that was like a nice little reprieve because other than the descents, which were long, some of them were very high speed, other than that, it's like you were climbing the entire day, right? You're either climbing a long climb or you're going down a pretty gnarly descent. And then some weather was blowing in, in like the final two hours of the race. So once we were on some open stretches, cause there were a couple small stretches of road there, there's pretty serious head crosswinds. So this little downhill dive into the mud was like a nice respite. Yeah. And then the race finishes with a very, to me, I mean, by Marin standards, it's just like, whatever, it's another ride up railroad grade, but it was like quite a long climb at the finish of the race with some pretty steep sections. Were you able to stick together with riders for some time? I know it's often challenging when you've got climbing and descending as people have different skill sets, but what was your experience? My experience was I started the day and then I continued to go backwards the entire day. It's and, a strategy I often enjoy. Good yeah, work. Yeah. And um, I, I, you know, it's interesting because I had done tr- some really hard training rides almost the full distance of this race. But at mile 40, for me, the wheels just completely 
came off and I started to get those like full leg cramps where you're like, Oh, I think my adductors and hamstrings are going to tear off the bone if I don't get off my bike right now. So I was that guy on the side of the road. And then I did (laughs) a lot more walking than I've actually done in any event, which again, I went to this event to challenge myself and do something I don't normally do. And I got that challenge. Yeah. And yeah. And ultimately you made it to the finish line, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I made it to the finish line. I did. Awesome. Yeah. And what, what was greeting you at the finish line? What kind of experience do they have there? Um, so at the finish line, it finishes at a hotel kind of uh, lodge thing that's higher up on the mountain and giant crowd of people and really nice finishing shoot. The mood, you know, I it was a bit more subdued than I had anticipated it being based on what I read about the event and had seen described in the media. Uh, from what I gathered shortly after finishing, a rider was killed on course. And by the time that I finished, I think that they they had more or less shut it down. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if they were pulling riders from the course or what was going on. And my one of my friends was like, hey, somebody got killed today. There was a statement on social media from the organizers about that. And I think that, you know, understandably it was a much more somber mood than I think yeah. it might've typically have been at the finish. That makes sense. I also read about that tragic news and, and such a tough loss for that cycling community for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good. I mean, I appreciate that overview of the race. Like it's ever since I had Heidi on the show in episode 12, it's always been one that had, had sort of just tickled my fancy because I, I, I feel like they've purposely kept the event weird. And they kept it on point and on brand for them. They're not trying to make this a full-time vocation. They're just trying to put on a great event for the community that represents their values, which all the evidence I've seen over the years is they hold those values close and strong, which I appreciate. Yeah, absolutely. And I didn't mention this, but they did have... There were a number of, um, you know, in tech, I can't believe I'm using like corporate nomenclature, but like we would call these like surprise and delight moments, right? So like when you're out on the course, you come around the corner and, you know, there's a dance party with people in costumes, stuff like that. And then of course the classic, like, hey, people giving you bacon or tons of people out there on the side of the road with coolers full of beer if you want to stop and drink a beer. Um you know, so there's, there's a lot of fun stuff like that that's going on. And then following the event, they had a grunge themed party afterwards. Grunge is back everybody. If in case, in case you haven't been sticking with it for the last, um, 25, 30 years, grunge is back. It's big, it's big here in the Northeast. So yeah, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of fun stuff. I also feel like Craig, I would be remiss if I didn't address the conundrum. I know, everyone will have planning for this event as they do for all events. So there's no outside support allowed. They have three water and aid stations on the course. They're not car accessible. Um, So you have to make that decision of what is my hydration strategy? Am I running a pack or am I going with bottles? I would say the course is definitely smooth enough that running bottles is fine. If you don't mind stopping and taking time to refill your bottles or do mix. Uh, the guys I rode with Morgan and Jamie, they both ran a pack and then one bottle. 
So kind of depending on your finishing time and whether you're just there to have a, a chill, you know, a chill ride with 7,200 feet of climbing or, <laughs> or you want to try to finish as quickly as possible. You kind of have to do that calculus. If you want to go really fast, I would say wear a pack and bring a bottle. And that's probably going to be enough if you can finish and sub three hours and 30 minutes. Um, for me, I ended up doing four bottles and yeah, I stopped at the 35 mile aid station to refill my bottles. Yeah. Cause I, I was, I was a completer. I can't yeah. resist that stopping. And if you want to know about the aerodynamics of camelback wearing, you can watch one of Dylan Johnson's yeah. recent great videos, which you may have covered on your podcast. I, I think that may have come out after we did the episode, but yeah, that was pretty interesting. And in line with what I've seen previously, I think, I mean, that's why they're banned in road racing because they're so aerodynamic. <laughs> I do want to touch on the podcast just real quickly. I know we're getting pressed on time, but can you talk about the choose the hard way podcast and what was your vision when starting it? I know talking to cyclists and, and cycling personalities is only a small component of it, but I'd love for you just to talk about the broader goal of it. Cause I think it's such a fascinating topic that resonates super strongly with me. Uh, awesome. I'm glad to hear that Craig. And I hope that, um, if people enjoyed this podcast and you like doing things like going and doing gravel events, I think you would dig the show and I invite you to come check us out. You can find us at choosethehardway.com and we're on all listening platforms and on social at Hardway Pod. The origin of the show for me was when I was a communications executive at Strava, I loved what I was doing. I was deeply passionate about it and grateful that I got to do it. And I really, really missed certain parts of what I got to do as a journalist. And the thing I missed the most was just the opportunity that I had to get to spend time with some of the world's most talented, highest achieving people. And more specifically, a learning that I had from my time as a journalist early on um, was just that some of the world's most talented, most successful people face the same struggles, moments of self-doubt as everybody else. And I know that there's a lot of talk about authenticity and so forth these days. And I just don't feel like a lot of stories are actually getting told that um, are truly unfiltered and really give you a look at what does it actually take to do things at the highest level in different disciplines. So the purpose of the show was I'm just a deeply curious person. And this was an area of curiosity that I wanted to pursue. I wanted to become, I, at that point in time, I bet I'd done more than 500, if not a thousand interviews as a journalist with different sources for different stories. And I just wanted to keep getting better at being an interviewer and to do something in a completely different format because what we do here, what I do on my podcast, it, it's somewhat similar to what you might do as a journalist, but everything about it is actually completely different. So I had to learn a whole new skill set. And I just really valued getting to share these stories with as many people as possible, just based around this idea that, you know, hard things build stronger humans and that doing hard things is fun, which ironically, I started the show in 2018. And since then, I bet there have been no less than half a dozen books and businesses started around like this whole idea of like, do hard things, et cetera, which is cool. I think it's awesome. The more people embrace that kind of mindset, the better. 
And what I like doing on my show is, is getting people at the top of their game on and just learning more about like, Hey, what does it actually take to do that? What has the path been and where do they want to go? Yeah. I love it. Thanks for that, Andrew. Everyone go out and subscribe to that podcast. Give it a listen. As I said, start, if you want to go easy, start with the cycling ones. You get the flow, you get into it and then dip into that deeper catalog. Cause you, you've got a lot of great guests on the show. Thank you. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for all the time. I appreciate uh, A, getting to know you in the course of recording on your podcast. B, just getting to know your experience as a cyclist. I knew we would sort of, our histories would align. The way I afforded my first bikes were, were painting houses. So you there were you pushing, go. I was swiping paintbrushes on houses. Yeah. Yeah. One of my, Craig, one of my least favorite jobs that I ever had was scraping paint. So I hope that you got to focus on painting and not scraping. Oh, uh, the scraping was the worst. I think they, oh, sell, so they, they sell you on the painting <laughs> and then you learn that you have to scrape in order to paint. Yeah. That's kind of like the rest of life, right? <laughs> if you know, you know. Yeah. Awesome. With that, I'll let you go, Andrew. Have a great night and we'll talk again soon. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. And I look forward to us catching a ride when I'm out in the Bay Area. Cheers. Thank you. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Gravel Ride Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Andrew. And I do hope you check out his podcast, Choose the Hard Way, available on most podcast platforms. Big thanks to our friends at Dynamic Cyclist. Remember to check out their stretching and strength training programs at dynamiccyclist.com and use that coupon code the gravel ride for 15% off any of their programs. If you're interested in connecting with me, I encourage you to join the ridership. That's www.theridership.com. And if you have a moment to support the show, ratings and reviews are hugely appreciated and very much drive our discoverability from other gravel cyclists around the world. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels. 